Thank you all for being here and continuing to be with us um, as we come to the uh, kind of closing sessions uh, and it's still multiple sessions for uh, the Georgetown Lit Fest. I'm Sharad Kutin, I'm one of the directors. Um, what we were hoping to do at this um, moment in the festival was to get, uh, in fact, the entire festival to come together to talk about um, something that is the, the foundations of all this that we do, whether you're a reader, whether you're a writer, whether you're a festival organizer, whether you're in the media, which is uh, freedom of expression. The idea that there's a sphere uh, of social life and political life where we respect difference, where we uh, allow ourselves uh, engagement, and it can be very muscular, uh, vigorous engagement, but yet respect the other. And I think that's something that we struggle with, uh, you know, uh, on, a, on a daily basis and in different countries, different, with differing uh, levels of intensity uh, in some contexts with huge amounts of violence in other contexts, less so um, in a physical sense, but maybe in a discursive sense. So um, to help us in this conversation, um, very proud to introduce you to our panel. We have Bernice Cholli. Uh, she's of course a writer in her own regard and was the festival director for many, many years. She started it, took it to the pinnacle, all... Uh, Eight years but one, right? Uh, would be the correct way of putting it. Um, she's also had, has been campaigning among writers in Malaysia to establish PEN. Uh, so PEN is now established in Malaysia, very recently minted. It's a newborn baby, still in diapers, still perhaps creating little mud pies that we all rather not talk about. But okay, so there you have it, Bernice Cholly. Um, uh, and Penn, and then also Kanan Sundaram, who's a publisher from India, um, you know, uh, thank you very much, um, who, who just informed me that, uh, yes, it, 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 absolutely for you, and you're, is this saffron? Okay, um, and yeah, I, I accept uh, compliments even when they're not directed at me. Okay, so Canon uh, is part of Penn South Asia, and uh, South Asian context, different from the Southeast Asian one, and we've had one other panel on Southeast Asian authoritarianism in the festival. Yes, he's from South India. We come from Southeast Asia, and that's, we did have a, a discussion on that, right? Now, um, Faisal Tirani, of course, is is a, a, a prolific, is in fact an understatement, a prolific writer, an academic, um, who has had his books banned, who's had, uh, in fact, um, continues to be under pressure for the kind of views he has, uh, for the, the work that he does. And so he can speak quite intimately about uh, the kind of context that we have in this country. So if you, you want to know more about how, how freedom of expression or, or uh, the oppression of expression is in Malaysia, Faisal is going to help us walk through that, okay? And then last we have Subash Naya, who's from Singapore, the island state that I grew up in, uh, and that's uh, tragically shaped my uh, outlook on life. Uh, so <laughs> Subash also uh, now under, the, you know, um, what is it, a conditional, what do you call it, a conditional? A conditional warning uh, from uh, his government uh, for the kind of work that he does. And if you want to know more about what 
what a conditional warning might be for a creative individual, I think that that's a very interesting area we can get into. How do you censor, constrain, uh, neuter the writer, creative individual that wants to extend um, uh, their expression in, within their own community? So we have these four individuals. I'm going to pass the, the mic over to Benice. Uh, in a physical sense, though I, I retain the conscious, ultimately, I am the director, and I can silence you at any point, Bernice, if you say something out of turn. Uh, but please, just walk us through the, um, the development of PEN in Malaysia and its establishment. Right. Um, so PEN International was formed in 1921 in the UK after the end of the First World War and has been very active um, in in the support of writers and freedoms of expression worldwide. Um, they were instrumental in getting Liu Xiaobo's wife, Lucia, out of China after her husband died um, and was unable to receive the Nobel Prize. So Penn has been, well, very, very active in, in many countries in the West, but of course in Southeast Asia, um, it is considerably uh, more difficult because of the authoritarian governments that we have. Um, <clears throat> so 10 years ago, the British novelist Hari Kunzru, who was then vice president of English Pen, came to Malaysia as a guest for the British Council and had a closed meeting with artists and writers and practitioners in the creative industries in Malaysia and basically said, you guys really need to start Pen because you need it. There is no freedom of expression in Malaysia. Um, and of course, during that time, um, 2008, it was still, who was president, who was PM in 2008? Yeah, Prime Minister. Badawi, yes, yes, Badawi. Um, but as you know, Malaysia has had a tradition of imprisoning writers, um, especially during the 70s and the 80s, and with Mahathir, um, the, the ISA was, was, of course, implemented many times with Operation Lalang. Um, and with May 9th, you know, we had a bloodless revolution, and of course, the, the Pakatan Harapan Manifesto included the repealing of the um, Official Secrets Act, the ISA, detention without trial, and so on and so forth, but these laws are still in place. So for the last 10 years, I have been trying to push Malaysian writers um, to form pen. Um, in 2012, um, one of the guests at this festival was David von Reybrook, who was then the president of um, Belgian Flemish Pen. He also said the same thing. And uh, in uh, 2015, Maureen Freely, the president of English Pen, was also a guest at the festival. We also had a meeting. And then last year, <clears throat> and of course, you know, with sending, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm spearheading this, I'm sending out emails, and everyone's saying, yes, 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 we want to get involved, we want to, we want to help. But of course, there is an element of fear because Penn puts you in the front line of any government because you are speaking on behalf of writers. You are fighting for their freedoms. If someone is harassed, if someone gets death threats, if someone's book is banned, Penn comes to the forefront. And Penn is a very, very powerful organization. It has seats on, the UNES on, on UNESCO and on the UN Council. Um, past presidents of Penn have included people like Arthur Miller, Tagore, so some of the world's greatest writers um, um, are involved in PEN. Last year, we had Sion from Iceland, who is the president of Icelandic PEN, Louise Welch from Scottish PEN, and Salil Tripathi, who is the chair of the Writers in Prison, Co Writers in Prison Committee. 
And it was the last event of, at the GTLF last year, and they basically said, look, you guys, you need to do this. Now that you have a new government, there is preferably you know, a greater sense of freedom for writers in this country. And um, finally, 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 um, I managed to get a steering committee together, and in the last year, we have drafted a constitution which took eight months. So each pen chapter has its own constitution, which is, which, will, which is adapted from the main pen constitution for the country in question. So, and in Pen Manila, um, I represented and presented Pen Malaysia, and we were voted in unanimously. So finally, Pen Malaysia has been ratified. We have 20 founding members, including Faisal Tehrani. But of course, as you know, ladies and gentlemen, the developments um, politically in Malaysia in the last few months have been very, very drastic and have taken a turn for the worse. Um, Penny Malaysia issued our first statement in defense of Mariam Lee, who wrote the book Unveiling Choice, and uh, who, has, who was harassed last year when the book was launched, and then again received a letter from Jabatan Agama Islam Selangor two months ago, asking her in for questioning. So we defended, um, we, together with Penn International, we wrote a statement in defense of her. Faisal Tehrani has been receiving death threats as well, so we need to do something about that. Um, but the problem now is, as you know, um, how do we set up Penn? We have been ratified, we exist in the eyes of Penn International, but how do we operate as a company? How do we register ourselves in Malaysia? And in light of recent events, including the fatwa against sisters in Islam, so if you're a liberal Muslim, if you're a Muslim, and if you're liberal, um, you can be labeled deviant. We have talked about many, many options in, in setting up PEN in Malaysia. So it, if we go with the Register of Societies route, um, which is you know, probably the easiest thing to do, but of course, PEN is ultimately political. And with the ROS, if somebody offends the government, because the ROS comes directly under the PM's department, and we have Mujahid Rawa, who is the advisor to the PM in regards um, of religious matters, is a bit of a right-wing nutter, and who's from Penang. Um, so it's very dangerous. So how do we do this? If ROS has a right to, if, 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 if ROS um, says, okay, you have offended, Islam, you have offended Muslims, you have a writer who is, is too controversial, ROS can actually shut us down. Um, we can be deregistered, they could freeze our bank accounts and we would have to get legal advice to, for a judicial review and, and that sort of thing. So ROS is definitely out of the question. A lot of um, the human rights organizations in Malaysia, SWARAM, Amnesty International, Sisters in Islam, they're all companies because they exist independently um, as companies with, with separate boards of directors. And this is how NGOs work in Malaysia, even though they're not NGOs. So that's one option that we are considering. But again, we can come under Malaysian law. And if we do offend the government, as is, um, has, as is, has what's happened with the sisters in Islam, um, they can't operate. So what do we do? Um, now we're looking at setting up Pen Malaysia in the UK. So we do not come under Malaysian law. We set up a subsidiary in Malaysia. So as you can see, it's, it's really, it's, it's such a tricky situation to be in. Um, and in the meantime, we have to keep continuing the work that we do because Penn 
is ultimately a political organization. It's, it fights for human rights, it defends writers, it defends our freedoms, it defends our freedom of speech, um, and, and it's just, we're in that situation now where we have to figure out what's the best option for us, but at the same time, um, Penn Malaysia is now in the front line. The government knows we exist, the uh, religious authorities know we exist, so we are now alive in Malaysia, finally. Um, we are able to help people like Faisal or to make statements in, 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 in support of him. But, uh, you know, we are putting ourselves in the line of fire. And I think a lot of the reasons why we couldn't do this in the past under the previous government was because I think people are afraid. You know, who wants to go to jail? Who wants to be harassed or interrogated by, 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 by a government? So um, the fight continues, and once we are legal, we will open ourselves to membership. So if you're keen to become a member of PEN, please do, PEN Malaysia, please do. And uh, we'll keep you updated. That's all I have to say about PEN. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, how many uh, uh, people here consider themselves writers, or people in the kind of creative arts? Yeah, uh, okay. Uh, how many of you are uh, right, uh, Malaysians and, and would join Penn? How many? Okay, could you please come to the podium? Let's swear on you right now. Let's sign them in. Don't wait. <laughs> they, 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 they're all excited now. Okay. Yeah, just reach from under your, your seat, um, the, uh, not the life jacket, but the, um, the form for Penn. Now, I'm going to introduce uh, Kanan again, and I, I kind of just reduced him to a publisher. He's actually an author, editor, and uh, so much more. Uh, Kanan, help us understand the, the, the work of Penn South Asia, if you can, just very briefly. Could you say something about it and help us understand what the challenges are in your context? So, <clears throat> earlier today, when I went back to my hotel, I was briefly connected on Wi-Fi. And I saw something in social media, which I then copied and emailed to the Pen India group. And I haven't had time to completely study what the issue is, except that a close friend of mine, a children's publisher uh, from Chennai, and she, she runs a children's publishing house called Cardi Tales, the Peer Tales. I, I don't think even she knew she was doing anything political, but I, I was shocked to see that on how a book and her authors are being attacked. And somebody, a group called Publishing Next, they had signed a statement in support of her. So I just copied that and sent to sent it to the pen group before I had to come out again for the panel. Now that is a context. A children's book actually is being attacked today, uh, of all things. I have, I have no idea why a children's book would be attacked by groups and who are the people who are attacking that, that I need to look into now. But generally, this is the context that we are operating in. So in 2014, um, six months into the then new right-wing Hindu government, um, we faced attack on one of our writers, uh, Parimal Murugan here. And um, so that is, uh, at that time, when the local, um, important newspaper from South India, the Hindu called and asked me, how are you going to uh, respond to this attack? I said uh, that we will not back down, that we will not withdraw the book. 
and we will face the consequences in the court or in the, in the media forums. Um, though I did not do this earlier on, uh, the big corporates in India, publishing houses, they have all already been sort of threatened or phone calls indicated and they had silently began withdrawing some titles offensive to the right-wing groups, like a book on Hinduism by, sorry, I'm not very good with names. So they started withdrawing those books. So when this, when this came, it sort of opened up a fight and we handled it at several levels, including the court, and we got a very positive judgment in favor of freedom of expression in 2016. So during this time, um, Penn International uh, reached out to me and they, they were concerned about what is happening in India and they wanted uh, some of the already Penn forums existing to reactivate. They also wanted to create uh, new forums that can be they can keep a tab on what's happening at the ground level in the States, not in Delhi and Mumbai. So at some point they reached out to some common friends. I was part of the first meeting and into the formation of Penn South India. I can't say I've been a very active member in that group uh, because of, you know, I'm a publisher and I have to do many things. Um, but that's how it started. So this is the, and I think some of the Pen groups that were not very active also became now become very active now, and uh, in the in the course of that, uh, Pen International when they had a conference in India in Pune last year, they chose Permal Murugan as one of their vice presidents. It's a honorary post as of the writers. So, so all this I think definitely has helped. Though signing a statement might seem very apolitical, like you know, it's just an extension of support. I will tell you that very recently, uh, a particular right um, journalist status as uh, an Indian of, uh, you know, of, uh, like if you are Indian and if you are a citizen of another country, you can become a second citizen of India. I think it's called OCI, Overseas Citizenship of India. That was withdrawn because he wrote an article that the Prime Minister found very offensive. And then a series of intellectuals, not from Penn, Otherwise, they signed a statement and they wrote a letter to the Prime Minister saying that, you know, this should not be done and it should be, uh, not, that, that status should be given back to him so that he can come and live in India like he has always lived in India. And for that, a police case was filed against all the signatories of that statement in the state of India. Now this is a very simple thing, but the thing is that when the local court 3,000 miles away has a small case and then you have to travel to that town to be present in the court or they can issue arrest warrant against you and produce you in the court. But thankfully at some point the higher court uh, you know, cancelled that local government's order. But even you know, the context what I'm trying to talk about is signing a statement, writing a children's book, Anything can become an act of politics. Like there's a wonderful place called Khan Market in Delhi, which for some reason the Hindu rights really hates. So now even going there to have dinner in the Khan Market restaurants can be very political. Because they, they hate the name, they hate the place, they see it as some sort of a liberal uh, center in India. And so anything and everything that they, anybody does not like, 
can become very, very political in today's context. Okay, well, so we're not going to be signing up to Penn South Asia. Maybe we'll just stay in Southeast Asia. It's a little South, South, South India. All oh, right, sorry. I keep thinking South Asia, I was thinking Pakistan and uh, Bangladesh, including Sri Lanka. Okay, well, you know, I mean, there's this, and there's some point we need to kind of calibrate the levels of um, oppression, repression that's happening in our societies, right? I mean, uh, in fact, the title of the, the talk is, is um, you know, Wise Crowds, Terrifying Mobs. And the idea is that if they keep using the courts, it might actually be positive because the courts are civil uh, and civilized forum for, for negotiation. Whereas the more terrifying thing is, is actually the mob violence that sometimes visits creative individuals because you can't use the courts to silence people, why don't we just bloody them, right? And that is a reality for some writers around the world. Now, okay, so I thought I'd give Faisal the mic now and maybe Faisal uh, can help us uh, to give you, who might not have an understanding of the, um, the, the mechanics of repression in Malaysia, this is a man who kind of knows it. He could probably teach a course, not in Singapore, because you can't teach dissent in Singapore. Uh, uh, could tell us about how it actually operates for you and, and whatever else you want to talk about. Yeah. Thank you, Shara. Thank you, Benice. Um, uh, in Malaysia, if you write in Malay, uh, you'll be sort of like uh, in spotlight. Um, you might miss a little bit the radar if you write in English because um, lit English literature, local English lit literature is perceived as um, a middle class thing or, um, you know, um, stuff like that, yeah? Uh, but if you write in Malay, um, you'll be uh, looked at, scrutinized by the readers, by terrifying mobs, <laughs> and by, you have many audiences uh, reading and looking what you're doing. So, uh, because of also writing in Malay uh, means that you know, in Malaysia, Malay is so embedded with many other stuffs, customs, is embedded with Islam. And in 1980s, because of the Islamic uh, revivalism uh, in the whole world, um, Malay literature is also identical to Islamic literature in a way. Yeah? So before 19, in the 80s, uh, you have uh, literary works dealing with prostitutes, for example, yeah? like uh, Isamat Said's uh, Salina, and uh, with other, other works, erotics works and other stuffs. In fact, human rights themes also. Uh, but in the 80s, uh, everything changes, so government, um, introduce um, this dasar penerapan nilai-nilai Islam, um, a policy to Islamize um, Malaysian government, I mean, the whole affairs yeah, in political, in education, 
economy, we have Bank Islam suddenly, we have a, and it's sort of like evolution. So people from, I mean, in the 70s, uh, you don't see many people wear tudung, for example, uh, and suddenly in the 80s, um, people wear tudungs, and in the 90s, people stop seeing each other. I mean, I'm, I'm saying that Chinese, Indian, Malay, suddenly very uh, fragmented, we are so divided suddenly, yeah? And people think it's, um, it's, a, it's normal. So when you have this Malay literature, it means also sort of like Islamic literature. And because of I'm um, design, I am um, mold, um, I, I was a, a, a student in, in, in school, religious school, when um, the Malaysian uh, authorities uh, that responsible to language and literature in Malaysia uh, selected me as one of, uh, to bring that to, the, to their workshop and sort of like trained me how to write. I was like 16, 17 at the time. And uh, I started writing, and because you, are, you have this privilege, you are being invited and you've been chosen and you've been uh, trained how to write. So most of my works are easily, you know, I, it's easily to penetrate um, medias in newspapers. And I keep winning uh, prizes, yeah, get a lot of recognition, stuff like that. Uh, the moment came, I think, in, uh, so I have faces in, 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 in my, my writing career, but at, oh, still at that time, uh, I've known Bernice and for, 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 for many years. We've, we've met in Ubud, I mean, early, in my early phase of writing, and also I met Sharad a bit years before that. And, um, but in a way that, um, because I write in Malay, I believe this is, I have to be politically correct. I have to be, I have to look after what I, what I write and I have to be very careful. Uh, I've written few, few stuff, few, few novels on human rights and political stuff, but it falls under a safe zone somehow, yeah? But um, in 2010, when a small religious community had been raided uh, in Gomba, so they came to meet me and asking my help. Uh, they thought that I'm a, I'm a Shia um, <coughs> adherent because of my, my, my pen name is uh, Fasa Tehrani. Uh, so Tehran, Tehrani is a link associated to, to Iran somehow. Um, but people asking help, so, and they said, oh, we want you to ask you, your help to, to, to write a report, a human rights report. And I say yes. Uh, I've been doing uh, reports on uh, newspaper media for Sharad for, for years before that. So I say, yes, yeah, so, so why not? And suddenly, uh, I've under spotlight. I'm, I, I'm, I'm really under the spotlight. And, uh, and also, I became human rights defender, accidental human rights defender. Suddenly, I, was fly, I, I fly to Geneva, I flew to Geneva, I flew to Dublin, uh, Rodos, Greece, and speaking on human rights. Uh, it's very new, new things to me, and then my books keep getting banned, seven of them. Um, okay, how do you know that your books are banned? You don't know. 
they don't tell you. Uh, after many months, they will gazette a whole bunch of books, banned books. When they gazette it, you have 90 days to bring it to court. After 90 days, if you didn't bring it to court, your book will be forever remained banned in Malaysia. What does it mean by a banned book in Malaysia? If you write a banned book, means that you are you are stopped being invited to. I mean, for Malay literary literary circles, yeah, you stop being invited to the readings. You stop being invited to any programs. And because at that time I was uh, sort of like a freelancer. I mean, a full-time writer. So suddenly. Um, I don't have any more um, jobs, you know. Uh, it, it's just abruptly uh, cease. I don't have any friends, and they, they stop seeing me. They stop calling me, and um, it's it's scary, you know, because uh, you you've been. This is the people that yeah, you meet every day. Suddenly, they avoid you, um, and. After 90 days, if you not um, uh, challenge the books uh, in court, as I said, it will be forever remained banned. But what does it take for the readers if they have the banned books? You know, I do have people sometimes, uh, after the books have been banned, there are a few readers that actually uploaded copies of the books uh, on social media. So I mean, like, oh, look, look, I have Faisal Turani's banned book. They, they don't know that what it takes you know, if you have, if you if you own, if you possess a banned books, um, it means that you can be imprisoned for two years, and find uh, a maximum two years, and find I think six thousand uh, minimum. Yeah, of course, there's no um, no any readers have been um, imprisoned because of that, but remember we do have. One girl that um, owned uh, reading materials uh, regarding ISIS, but if that, that might be for under different different case. Yeah, yeah. So uh, when you have a when you have a banned book um, in Malaysia, you are so called demonized and marginalized, and nobody wants to reach you anymore. But also. How does book get banned? Um, this department that bans books is actually under uh, religious um, authorities, federal religious authorities council, uh, that they have this one department um, managing and controlling uh, reading materials regarding Quran, Al-Quran. So bagian kawalan Al-Quran actually. And there are only uh, two staffs actually working there. So these are the two staffs that actually are responsible for banning um, many books, you know, Darwin books, um, my books, who else? Um, a few other books, yeah, yeah. Fifty Shades of Grey, yeah, 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 yeah. Fifty Shades. Ah, Karen Armstrong, yeah, Karen Armstrong. Uh, they're strange, yeah. So these are the peoples, and of course they are uh, 
gradu they graduated from Islamic studies. You know, because of this dasa penerapan nilai Islam in the 80s, government had been sending a lot of students to uh, Middle East, uh, to Saudi Arabia and to Jordan. And after 10 years, they came back and become religious teachers. They, they, they fill in all these positions in many government agencies. So they are the ones responsible. So after, they will advise the Home Ministry what book to be banned. And uh, the Home Minister will gazetted, will sign it and become gazetted. Yeah? And after 90 days, if you don't challenge it, um, it will be remain forever banned. And for one book to be unbanned, you need like 50,000 ringgit to unban it. So imagine that. So I have seven. Um, and it's, it's, not, it's not, I mean, the, those sevens are not my finest works. And so, yeah, so I let them ban it. But um, also in certain states, um, they, just, they don't just ban books. They have fatwa on that particular book. So one of my books, Prompanda Bacinta, that had been launched by the Prime Minister, is actually gazetted as a deviant book and uh, also that means that the writer it has also a clause that a writer falls under this so I mean I'm branded as deviant so walking in the street as a deviant if you imagine that um, so do I uh, try to reach out my friends people who write in Malay Malay uh, literature yes after being banned I keep asking people say look I've been banned, and um, I mean, I, I'm asking your help. I've even begged few Sastrawanagaras, national laureates, to help me. Um, but nobody wants to help because, you know, nobody wants to be associated with Fasatarani, a deviant, because you have this fatwa against you. Um, we have Pena. I mean, the name of Pena seems like it's Pen, yeah? It's not. Uh, Pena is a, it's a, a Malay uh, literary organization that deals, that they, like most of the Malay writers, they be a members of Pena. So according to them, Pena actually tries to help Malay writers to face the authorities and second to help them uh, with uh, the publishers, you know, in Malaysia, I mean, we have this conversation a few weeks before Bernice that we, don't be, we, we are not paid properly because of royalties, stuff like that. So PENA is supposed to help writers, uh, including this matter also. But PENA is not doing that anymore because they're sort of like a, a government machinery. After Malay literature been creep Malay literature is identical with Islamic literature. Now, what happened is, I think in, um, is it 1998 or 1999? No, no, 2000, year 2000, Shahnun Ahmad um, written a novel, a satire called Shid, entitled Shid. She's from, he's from Penang. And uh, nobody reached him. And suddenly he's also become uh, marginalized and condemned. Uh, and I am one of, a, one of his students, actually uh, very last final student of Shahnun Ahmad. And I saw him actually struggling to reach, uh, 
to reach, to reach other people. But Shahanun, he's already a national laureate, and he's a, he's a, a professor in, in USM, and he's, he's already in the 60s, I think. And uh, so he opted to, to retire and run uh, in election. And Shahanun Ahmad's books have been banned because of, it's, it's, a, it's political. No, it's, he's not banned. The book is not even banned. So the last Malay book being banned, I mean, we do have erotic spawns being banned, but the last serious uh, literary products being banned is Isa Haji Muhammad, Pak Sako, during the British uh, era. So mine is uh, in the contemporary Malaysia is like after 50 or 60 years. Um, and so when you get banned, um, as I said, you are being uh, marginalized um, and demonized and you lost your friends and here comes support system. I mean, uh, uh, Bernice is talking about support system, but I'm talking about there's no lack of support system. So I just don't know where to go. And in 2016, I think, uh, when I came here for the Georgetown Literary Festival, I told Bernice that, you know what, um, I do have, should I say it? <laughs> I, I, I do have, um, should I say it? Yeah, yeah. I, do, I, I have an arrest warrant in, the, in this state, uh, Sharia, from, from Sharia uh, Religious Authority. I don't know why. I mean, you know, when you deal with this religious establishment, they just don't tell you why, I mean, you are being uh, scrutinized, yeah? So I told Benice that, you know, you look, uh, I don't go pinning for fun, you know? I don't, I, I don't go holiday pinning. And, um, but because since it's you, so I'll come. Uh, but very fortunate at that time, um, not very fortunate, like, in the um, Zuna was also there. <laughs> Zuna was also here. So Zuna have this, this uh, comic, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Rose Sapu, whatever, I, I can't remember, with uh, uh, exhibition in Komta, and um, a bunch of right wings uh, uh, stormed in the exhibition and confiscate all the posters and uh, the paintings and stuff like that. So Zuna was under spotlight, arrested even. Yeah? He was uh, under... Uh, Sedition Act, and at that time, uh, we have a strong, we, we, we issued a strong statement, I remember, and Professor A.C. Grayling also was here. So yeah, um, then we start conversation with, with Bernice and others and said that uh, it's time, yeah, because we don't know what we're going to happen. So sort of like that, that is the story, and uh, why, and, and why if you write in Malay, uh, it will be more dangerous, more risky for you uh, in this country. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Faisal. I mean, I'm sure it's quite uh, kind of painful to have to go through the details of what is essentially an attempt to silence you, right? So, okay, so now we move to the sunny island of Singapore, uh, where, 
where Subash comes from. And Subash was recently involved in a controversy. Um, uh, and while Subash is doing his thing, I will send a, a paper cup around to collect the 350,000 ringgit that we need to get your seven books. Uh, th 350,000 ringgit is about $80,000, is it? Is that something, US dollars, something like that? Okay. So, uh, Subash, tell us your story. And tell us whether, in the context of Singapore, you have the kind of institutional support uh, or associational kind of support for uh, do people come together or they get frightened, they get fragmented? What's the response like in Singapore? Okay, so everybody can hear me? Perfect. Um, my name is Subash, and I am a rapper from Singapore. Most of my work is questioning power in Singapore. Um, so, I mean, also I want to respond a little bit to what uh, everybody on the panel has shared. Um, in Singapore, it's so different because I would say Malay is the language has the more potential for resistance than writing in English. So I think like just in the rap world, Akim Jahat, if y'all haven't checked out his word, Akim Jahat is, is, gets, gets to say so much that nobody understands because they don't speak Malay. But the people who need to hear, hear it. So there is a network that maybe doesn't try to be a network, but it does exist. And um, so yeah, as, a, as someone who writes well, I wouldn't say exclusively in English because my sister and I do put out like songs in Tamil. Um, it's, it's something that I know they hear. I know they're not listening, I know they hear. Um, and it's very interesting to think about like which of my works have come under scrutiny, which of my works they don't want to acknowledge because they don't, they're not ready for that conversation, and which of my works is just like uh, outright, yeah, you can't say this, you cannot perform here. Um, so yeah, that's just the, the, inter the interesting kind of like reverse that's going on in Singapore. If you rap, if you write in your mother tongue, uh, it's almost seen like, oh, you're writing for a very small group of people. Basically, if you don't write uh, something that the majority <laughs> Chinese people can understand, uh, yeah, you, you basically can get away with saying a lot more than you would think. Um, but yeah, in, when, so when I think about the mob or the crowd or public assembly or a riot, who gets to define like, what this collective is called? I mean, in Hong Kong right now, one of the five demands is to be called protesters, right? To, to reverse that because a riot comes with a sentence. In Singapore, when Little India, when a, they don't understand Indian grief, when a, man was, when a migrant worker was uh, knocked down by a car, right, it automatically becomes racialized in Singapore, like that. The moment it happened, oh, Chinese... Uh, bus driver, Indian victim who died, Indian men gathering around, grieving, angry. They don't understand how we express. And so it became very easy, the headline. The optics becomes, you know, migrant workers, this, crowds in Little India, alcoholics. You know, it, it, it was an a MP, Denise Poir, said, large congregations of people in Little India are walking time bombs. So that was in 2013-14. So... That's why I think, and, and, every, and that's a riot. So today, that's known as the Little India Riots of December 2013, uh, if I'm not wrong. So that was actually my moment of, I guess, awakening, enlightenment. It really changed my life, that moment, knowing that I was sitting in my house, uh, constantly thinking about these questions and seeing the portrayal of people who look like me, seeing Malaysians constantly being hung in Singapore, seeing brown bodies, how our stories were not there in the forefront. Seeing that it's not just brown, it's so, in, the inequality in Singapore is, is, is disgusting. 
that we live in, uh, in a country that has the potential to do so much more in the region. So today, if you ask me, I'm first Southeast Asian before I am Singaporean because I think it's very important. There's almost like the othering process when, we, when I utter Singaporean. Um, but yeah, so I mean, ultimately all these, what um, people, how people are kind of referred to, it's all ways of policing dissent. And you brought up dissent and resistance just now. We were talking actually about um, Alfian's course. I work at Yale and US College. I graduated from there. And uh, so I work back there now as uh, athletics. I work on the athletics department. But um, it was disgusting what um, my college did to Alfian and how they put, threw him under the bus. For Absolutely. So Alfian Saad, um, one, I mean, Google him. He is amazing. Uh, um, very influential. Who's, who's banned from coming to Malaysia, by the way? Oh, really? Okay, wow. So I did not know that. But yeah, Alfian was supposed to run a course for students at Yale and US about dissent and resistance. And uh, the school, I don't know how, but what they said was, oh, he was creating a protest course, or teaching students how to protest. And immediately the course, course was canceled like about a, less than, I think about two weeks before it was supposed to happen. And uh, there have been rumors that the students' names who signed up for the course have been given to the Singapore police. There, and, and, the, and the school portrayed Alfian as someone who was just trying to stoke um, dissent. Someone was trying to get students in trouble, irresponsible about his uh, teaching. And so just in a very meta way, actually, we were talking yesterday because his stuff was, he was censored from teaching that course, even though he made the necessary revisions for it to, to eventually, like, you know, got the green light. The school didn't want to do it. Nobody, in, that's the thing about Singapore, what I've come to realize is that nobody will F up the money. It's we are for profit. We are ready for business. We're not ready for conversations. We're not ready for change. We're not ready for an equal society. We are ready for profit, right? So nothing to fuck up the bottle line is, is, is what is, is the modus operandi in Singapore. And even institutionally. So that is so we, we constantly, the discussion is always about, oh, we need education. We need to go back and we need to think about this and this. How can we incorporate? But I would say in so many ways, we need to be thinking about minority voices, indigenous voices, that that has to be the education. It is the space to create our own syllabus for ourselves. And because the institutions as is, are so, it's so deeply entrenched. It's, it's all like a bunch of corporates running so many institutions in Singapore, including the education ones. So it's really difficult. And, and in a very meta way, Elfin taught us all a course. Instead of the 16 students to sign up, all of us got an education on dissent and resistance in Singapore. And we're talking about it. Same thing like, I guess, uh, what Priti and my work about uh, Brownface recently making a rap video, calling it out. It starts that a debate that really is about time that we've had. Um, but yeah, so after all this, this year has been tricky. The elections in Singapore were supposed to happen this year and uh, they got pushed back a little bit. So I mean, we have Penn, we have Pena, but in Singapore, I think we all really penat really. <laughs> we all really uh, penat <laughs> means tired. Oh, we're so tired. And Alfian coined that word. Uh, so I mean, he coined it to think about like a collective sentiment of like 2019. But it's true. It's it's a really tiring process, and also that is kind of uh, because of the legal process that everybody here has shared. Right? The legal process is not because they have cases that they are going to win. It's to remind you every single time that you will lose. And so just the individual versus the state versus the institution, that's a battle we're never going to win. And it's difficult because the, the moment you enter that battle, it's when do you say, what do you say, the media and how that becomes a mouthpiece of everything that is going on and, the, and how politicized it gets. 
Um, and the allies who stand up and speak, but who are also constantly like, you know, people don't have space to form their own opinions because books get banned, because videos get banned. So that's really the scariest part about, you know, authoritarian regimes in, in, in our part of the world, in Southeast Asia. So, yeah, just even recently, Singapore have, has a POFMA. I think it's, I don't know what it stands for. We love our acronyms, but it's a it's proliferation of online falsehood or something like that. They keep the lines grey, right? They keep the lines grey so that this can very easily, oh, this is untrue. Satire is untrue. It's falsification of fact. So that they can persecute you. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really, really scary, uh, especially as someone who is just trying to write and express myself. That's all I'm trying to do without political affiliation, you know? Um, and it's... That's just the space that creatives are in. But when we talk about coalition building, I guess, um, when we talk about these networks that exist in Singapore, but they are probably a little more silent. I don't know if Penn could ever like step into Singapore. I'm sure you can uh, share a little bit about that too. But um, yeah, there is allyship uh, in Singapore, definitely between writers and creatives. Um, just, you know, when Sunny Liu, uh, who is a cartoonist who was amazing at what he does. He's an illustrator and uh, he wrote The Art of Charlie Chan. Um, so he made a Facebook post about like when, when my sister and I uh, were in trouble with the law, he made a Facebook post, he expressed himself, so many other artists did. Um, and those who don't, it's also very important for us that they have the space to find their own pathways of figuring things out. Like for example, in Singapore, um, we have um, June. June is a leader in the, in, uh, she's, she founded the Tea Project. I don't know if she founded, but she's one of the leaders of Tea Project. Let me get that right. Uh, and it's, it's a basically a home for trans folk in Singapore. For them, it's like a shelter for them to just be safe, you know, and just, uh, just find solidarity. And June told me after everything happened, like just last week, she told me when she saw me at an event, she said, Subash, I'm really sorry I didn't speak up during the whole incident with the brown face and everything because we knew that the law minister was coming to our shelter like in, um, in just a few months ago. So last month, the law minister visited the shelter as part of, of course, the election tour, right? So <laughs> as, uh, and she knew that he was coming um, later in the year. So she didn't want to say anything that could affect maybe him showing up and, and that rec and awareness and recognition for the work that they do. So for me, I was like, June, this is not about you and me. I love you as a friend. But this is about the larger mission and purpose of all our arts, right? This is about, it's about those more vulnerable, those who don't get the chance to sit at panels like this. And so it's always, if we keep them at the forefront, do what you need to do. That's why I'm never going to say like, why weren't you vocal? Because that's, that's the cost to being vocal in Singapore. Definitely the law minister would not have showed up at the shelter if she said anything. But also at the same time, the amount of support that we got, there are like lawyers like Eugene Theresingham, who is right now doing a constitutional appeal um, against 377A in Singapore. So the, there are good people who are doing great work, who are doing pro bono work that um, are there and are supportive. So I think in, a man, in many ways, if I look within rap and solely within rap, wow, well, don't have. Right? Because nobody really rap in Singapore is in many ways like appropriated blackness. It's really sad because record labels are in cahoots to do work in Singapore they have to adhere by Singapore law. And Singapore law is you can't say anything about Singapore politics. So most rappers who are signed or affiliated or with distribution labels, they're not saying anything that could, again, F up the money. So it's about independent art, it's about independent spaces, which we don't have many of in Singapore. 
and the few spaces we have are probably in living rooms, in HDB houses, in, in those spaces. And um, I don't know if I don't know if it can. It it must start from there. Is what I know. I know that it must start from conversations that happen in these small spaces. Um, but also on the same point of allies, it's so scary even being an invited guest to speak somewhere in Singapore. Like recently, we my sister and I were on a panel. And uh, we were given a tip off that like someone in the panel was from the Ministry of Home Affairs, and they were there like on on work at work. When I was at Yale and US College, right, uh, when we had this whole discussion, because I'm an alumni, when I when I, when I went back for this dissent and resistance, there was a students only town hall where alumni were invited, so I went. There's another alumni member in my school who works for the Public Affairs Department who was also uh, eligible to come because he's an alumni, but he was there on official duty that I only found out later. It is that insidious in Singapore. So the affiliation is never towards the more vulnerable or never like aligned towards justice. It seems like it's always towards profit. So yeah, the, the moles in the crowd, the conditional warnings, what I come to realize is that they're not gonna get you when it's hot. Like the school should, could, they should have never hired me and they should have fired me a long time ago, right? But they cannot now. Because now, if they do, it's not a good look. The government cannot clamp down beyond what they clamped down on my sister and I because things are hot, right? But I feel that um, it is when we least expect it. It'll be for jaywalking. <laughs> that because a conditional warning is uh, they can charge you for the first offense if you commit a crime, any crime in the next two years. So we know how the game goes. Like, we're not idiots. Like, they, you know, so I think... Um, but again, it's always there are people... I don't... I always have faith. Only, and it's not a religious faith, but I just have faith in, in people. I have faith that like the good work that PJ Tham and Kirsten are doing with New Narrative, I have faith in them. And they're going to find a way to keep making, um, writing the news and being journalists because we need journalists in Singapore. And we have so many other people who have found their own ways to dissent. And so like my sister and I, she does it through satire. Not many people, uh, I think it's so important that that space and her positionality in the larger network of, of moving conversations forward in Singapore. Again, the most important thing is that I don't feel like I have any of these answers, um, but it's about can we create a climate where we have the conversations that I at least figure out how you feel without the fear of, without you having to fear for your freedom by speaking your mind or like having to constantly look over your shoulder. Um, but yeah, so... Back, I guess the final point I would like to share is like before I guess we open it up a little bit more is about banned songs. Uh, so recently I had a song banned about migrant justice in Singapore and it was banned after the whole us doing a song on brownface and the headlines, blah, blah, blah. So Channel News Asia pulled the song and it revealed again how convenient and how easy it was to erase the narratives of those who are the most vulnerable. Again, the reason why they... Hi, they, they commissioned me to write that song uh, with the migrant band was to bring those narratives to the forefront as part of a national day kind of like a showcase. And again, it reminds us all like that we are the Channel News Asians. We have to document lived experiences on the streets. We have to tell the truth because we cannot depend on the state to do that. They are only going to tell what they want whether it's the Western world or whether it's the rest, the, whether it's the money holding um, the pockets of, of, of people who they want to give tax breaks and people who they want to uh, show that they're open for business in Singapore. So yeah, um, 
and, and very importantly, whether it's the religious leaders who become these uh, uh, figures of authority, or whether it's the home affairs ministers that we have in Singapore, uh, ultimately it's men. It's men who are making decisions on behalf of everybody. And I feel like it's, 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 it's leadership needs to change, how that looks like in Southeast Asia needs to change, and uh, masculinity needs to be fixed. Men need to start having these conversations, I think, so importantly. Um, yeah, and I guess I'll just leave on one last thing. Uh, so on the front lines, most of these people are on the front lines, the crowds, the mobs, those who are having their public assemblies, we are on the front lines. When I was being interrogated by the police, when he was sitting, the, when the investigating officer is sitting in front of me, and I told him the, I told him this very simple thing. I said, "It's a young chap, like Chinese guy, maybe like twenty something, like me." And I told him, "Hey, you and I are both on the front lines of this. You are probably doing something that your boss asked you to do, and I am here representing, and we both are here trying to serve. You as an officer, me as a rapper. How often do we get a chance to sit down at the same table, and you have to hear me out, and I have to help you in your case?" This is a moment of unity because in 10 years, you're going to be some superintendent and I might be some OG rapper, right? But the truth is, we need each other now as we will need each other in 10 years. So this is a point where if you can understand me better, then take this message and bring that to whoever you report to and whoever reports to you, right? And I will take this message that we are here to work together, right? Because it's important. That unity is important. And it's never the people on the front lines. It's never the people on the front lines who my arrows are pointed towards. So I think those distinctions are important. And what did he say? He smiled. Yeah. And at the end of it, I mean, he, he told me off the record, he told me that, thank you. He said that he learned a lot from this interview. And I, and I said, no, absolutely. It's, again, it's never about, it's always... He was, I don't even think that he, 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 he felt right interrogating us for, for, for what we did. Yeah. So we, have, we know that there are allies, but there's also, it becomes that there's a code of silence. There are so many things that prevent people from just expressing themselves because they will lose their jobs. Thank you very much. Um, that was very inspiring. In fact, I now think that if I'm going to be uh, a rapper, it's still time for me, I would call myself Insidious Hot. Insidious Hot, bring those two notions together. You think it works? Insidious Hot? Yeah, I, I like it. Okay, now, um, lots of serious stuff there, and, uh, you know, it, it's possible to get really depressed by, um, by, by some of the stories that we're hearing about the difficulties for our, our fellow in the creative world to do very simple things, expressing themselves. So, um, I'm going to open the, the discussion up. Joke has made a, a request. At some point, we want to hear you rap. Rap some of the lyrics, what do you say? But before we, you know, we'll, we'll leave it to the end so we can leave with a high and we'll march up there and we'll march to somewhere. I don't know, maybe march to dinner. But okay, uh, but before we march to dinner, do you have questions? Do you have questions, clarifications? Do you want to ask questions like, how can I help? What can we do? Uh, where do I sign up? Can I pay this $1,000 fee in, you know, in, in uh, stages, so on and so forth? Is, is that what it costs to join Penn? How much does it cost? Nothing. Uh, 150 Okay. Um, so do you have questions? And uh, will uh, the mic people can come to the front of the room so they can see anybody? Just put up your hand and hold them up in the air for a little while so uh, we can uh, identify you. If you have a question or you want to, it's a point of clarification. Yeah, Kelly. Um, 
I'll get it started. So what about um, the case of Mersban Shroff, um, Canon, in, in, um, in, in India? So he was accused of, um, what was it, um, inciting communal violence or something like that. And he was sort of dragged through, you know, you'd mentioned that, you know, if you can't, you can go to the court system and, and have, that, have, you know, these cases settled within the, the court system. So what happens if the court system, as it, as it is clearly in, in many places, if, if you can't find justice there because of corruption, Merzban Shroff, um, he, um, author of Breathless in Bombay, um, he was um, investigated over several, several years, spurious investigations over the um, accusation that his book promoted communal disharmony. Um, the police had lodged a case against Straw for allegedly inciting communal disharmony by addressing Maharashtrans as Gati, lowly in his book. So my question is, what happens if you ca when you can't um, you know, go to the courts for justice, if your book has been banned, you know, if they try to ban your book and, and the courts can't help you? Yeah, so I, I won't recommend going to the court as a solution uh, at all. Um, in our case, uh, I think we had sort of a lucky break. Uh, but on the whole, I would say that uh, the higher courts in India have always, as far as I know, in the gen speaking generally, uh, defended freedom of expression, probably not in every case. And um, in this case, uh, it was a Progressive Writers Association that took the matter to the court, and I was uh, invited to by the court to appear as a petitioner. And we were lucky in the sense that uh, a very major lawyer came forward and offered to fight the case pro bono for us. There is absolutely no way I could have afforded any lawyer's fee because actually he's argued in the court for 18 hours. And uh, the judge was a very enlightened person. And like it is, it is by chance that you know which bench of the high court it goes to is not what you decide. So it is, he was there on that bench and we sort of knew his record of uh, kind of defending freedom of expression. So we were actively during the process of the inquiry, translating documents for him, producing, you know, giving him documents, books and everything possible. And as a result, we got a very important case, uh, I mean the decision. And I, I it, you know, it is a very, very important decision in the sense it keeps getting quoted and Two weeks back, uh, as I mentioned in the earlier panel, that it was a high court judge ordered that lower court magistrates must not file a complaint against an artist on any flimsy petition without considering the artist's freedom of expression. So that is very important. So it is very important. But I don't think that in every case uh, the court will come to your rescue and uh, save you. Even the process of going through the court process itself can be quite terrible. You know, number of times you need to appear. And so if you have a hearing today, I'll give you a very small example. If you have a hearing on Thursday, there is no time for it. You appear at 10 in the morning. Until evening, they can call you at any time. So, so just, just, I think, spending a whole day in a court is enough to depress you beyond imagination. And so I don't think that is a remedy at all. Even on our case, I think it, is, it was in a sense pathetic that we, had, that we had to go to the high court 
to defend the writer's right to write a novel. That is not, I, know, I don't think that is a, a, how a society should work. It's a piece of fiction and then you go to court to prove that you have the right to write a piece of, you know, a novel. And that, you know, I don't think that's, that's a remedy at all. And I know that um, depending on the judges, things can go any, in any direction at any point. And being in a Mumbai court, uh, I'm just going by the name, I don't, I don't, I don't rec uh, recall this uh, case. Uh, in today's context, a Muslim writer uh, in Mumbai court, uh, probably his chances are not very good. That's the situation. Okay. I'd like to, sorry, I just want to talk about the case of Ezra Zaid. Um, so seven years ago, um, Ezra Zaid published a book which was originally written in English um, called Allah, Freedom and Love. Canadian writer um, Ezra decided to translate it into Malay and called it Allah Kabebasan dan Cinta. The book was sold publicly in many bookstores um, and then the religious authorities deemed that it was deviant. So, they went into borders and they arrested the manager of a particular borders outlet. They charged her under the Sedition Act, was it? The case went on for two years. Two years, she was harassed by the religious authorities. It went on and on and on. And then, of course, Ezra got charged. Last month, I believe, the court dropped the case. And then a few weeks ago, it was picked up again by the Sharia court. And it's ongoing. It has been seven years. Seven years for publishing a book on Islam about freedom and love. And I feel so, I mean, you know, just talking to Ezra, he's just, it's, it's, it's just terrible. This is a dear friend of ours. Um, it's just horrific what the government is doing to him, especially when you cannot even get justice for this in our courts. Yeah, there's, a, there's an interesting, uh, I mean, part of the story is the context has changed, right? In the sense that politically, this current government has committed itself to repealing repressive laws. But beyond repressive laws, which of course largely remains on the statutes, is the institutional cultures of many of our governance uh, in, uh, structures that hasn't changed. And how do you get that change too? Because authoritarianism isn't just in the laws, it's in the way people think about, and it's not just the bureaucrats, it's also society. And that seems to be the huge challenge uh, in the question of freedom of expression, you know, that you have to go to a court to defend the right to write a novel, for instance, kind of really extraordinary in a democratic nation. Okay, questions from the floor. Uh, hi, I'm from Singapore. I, this question is directed to all of you. So recently in like, uh, many institute studies and policy studies, we found that uh, younger generations and a lot of newer generations have been increasing in their support for minority rights and learning about more about these kinds of things, opening up conversations. So for instance, in Singapore, it has, uh, what they found is that within the span of 10, 15 years, support within like, uh, younger age groups has nearly doubled, and if not tripled. So 
when in this kind of changing demographics, how do you think this will affect the different governments within Southeast Asia? How do you think it will affect their approach to it? And how do you think it affects writing as a whole within this region? Uh, support for writer, creative writing and then uh, rights for writers to express their opinions and ideas. The woke generation might save us. <laughs> right. No, but that's a, it's a really interesting question. Uh, is are our societies changing, perhaps even faster than governmental structures? I mean, where can we look to to secure the freedoms? I think is that what you're, you're suggesting, that in fact there is a shift, there's a ground shift ideologically. Want to any of you want to respond to that? Very quick response to, to where is the source for... for uh, I mean, if you're going to go to the public, where do you go? I mean, who's going to help you? Who's going to stand by you? Actually, yeah, I would say that, I mean, first of all, policy, research, and data in Singapore, I question. I, 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 I mean, like, there's always some kind of agenda, and when it's released and all that, like, yeah, but let's just say we, we go with this, right? Like, there is a growing sentiment of support, right? Um, I would say, yes, sentiments on the ground are changing, but we would like to, a lot of times we say policy isn't, right? And it's archaic, it's outdated, it needs updating. Actually, that's not really true because I think policy is also changing, but it's becoming more insidious. It's becoming, it's even more so trying to like uh, repress these sentiments. And a lot of times they remain as sentiments because there's not enough spaces where people can gather, discuss, and, and really disagree. That's what I, I, I crave. I look for places where people disagree because that's where the beginnings of whether it's a democracy or whether it's, it's how we can like, learn to negotiate the differences yet see the similarities in where we are coming from. So that I would say yes, today there are conversations in Singapore that are happening that I never grew up hearing. Like even the idea of like minority safeguards, never grew up even thinking about that, right? But I will say that for us to make sure that this generation, when they are our, I guess, like when they are in their 30s and 40s, uh, what, how, how we must move the conversation forward is accountability uh, by people who are servants to us, people who are paid to represent us. How can they actually take the sentiment and uh, accurately represent that, not just in a internal policy study, but make sure that becomes the core tenet of like what we must be as a country. Like that gets kind of codified in our own value system. And that part is the, but that's, that linkage is kind of missing for me. This is a very, very difficult question for us because a month and a half ago, four public universities in Malaysia came together to organize a congress called the Malay Dignity Congress. I'm just wondering if anyone from special, special branch is here at the moment. <laughs> um, They're just doing their jobs. Yeah, so four public universities in Malaysia coming together to speak. It's hate rhetoric, okay? And then during the convocation ceremony, one of, um, you know, a, a graduating student who was Chinese put up a banner, you know, basically calling out the vice um, chancellor as being racist. And they took his degree away from him. They withheld his degree, his law degree. This is what's happening in Malaysia right now. I really don't know what's going on. We, we had so much hope, you know, after May 9th. We had a bloodless revolution. We, we kicked this corrupt government out. But in the last few months, it's just become terrifying. I don't understand what's happening to this country. I really don't. 
I have friends who are journalists who are afraid to go to rallies because they're not Malay. So it's given rise to a sense of populism, an extreme far-right understanding of what being Muslim and Malay means in this country. And um, I don't know where it's going to go. I really don't know where it's going to go. Well, we asked maybe Faisal. I mean, addendum to the law students, they eventually, they said they didn't actually, we weren't going to actually pull away his degree, though there was chatter about it. They, he did get his degree, right? He, eventually. I mean, it was just a, the question of whether the certificate was ready or not. But anyway, but, the, but you're right. I mean, this, the conversation itself was extraordinary, right, at that point. Faisal, what's your thing? I mean, are you, I mean, suggest, I think you're maybe pessimistic. Are you uh, equally pessimistic? Well, it took two, two person to ban my book, <laughs> and Karen Armstrong book. So imagine, um, and Ishan Manji's book. Uh, you know, many years ago, I've written this um, uh, TV, TV uh, a movie for TV, for television. Um, and it's about, um, you know, there, there are so many uh, Arab tourists coming into this region, right? Especially Malaysia. And sometimes you see that <coughs> um, they're walking with girls and um, they are actually married for a few months during the summer vacation here. So there's, there's a term called nikah misyar or misyar um, marriage. Sort of like a contract marriage, but it's not a contract like the one that's been practiced by the, the Shias. Uh, which is a time frame, but this one is that they make that sort of like, um, you know, I'm going to get married, I'm, we're going to get married for two months, and uh, on 2nd of July, for example, I'm going back to Saudi or whatever, so, and something like that, yeah? So this one becomes sort of like socialized court and stuff like that. And there's a debate between uh, clerics, Malik, you know, my works are always about uh, religious establishment. So they have this debate because they thought that, oh, there are so many Muslim, Malay, Muslim women that they are not married. So we need to do something. Perhaps Nika Misyar is um, a way, a way to, um, out of it. So these are the characters in your book? Uh, in, Talking. In, that, in that movie. In, in that, the movie, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And I, I've written it, and I, I sent it to a competition, actually. We have a lot of competition in Malay language. And it, it won, and the former king actually gave the prize, uh, uh, the Sultan of Trengganu, uh, current Sultan Trengganu. So, and then uh, this, uh, this, uh, this actress and director, uh, Irma Fatima, she, she called me and said, oh, I would like to do a movie out of this. So I said, yes. So, so they made a movie, and then, um, they, they sell it to RTM uh, in order to, to, to be aired. The public broadcaster. The public broadcaster, yeah. Uh, but um, many months after that, Irma called me and said, Faisal, you need to help me. You need to go to Jakim. Um, religious the, the religious authorities, development. Yeah, Islamic oh, yeah. authorities. <laughs> you know, they're not paying me. I have 80,000 ringgit. I need to pay my crews. Um, you need to talk to them and explain them, I mean, I don't really understand about this, this Nikamisa, so you wrote it, so go and help us. Um, actually, I've been paid. I mean, myself, I've been paid. Um, I've won the, the prize, and I've said, okay, if I want, I, I just can say, okay, I mean, what the heck, why, why should I help you? But 
I, I feel responsible because there's a cruise that, I mean, they need to be paid. So I went to, to this um, session with, uh, with a few staffs, and they have like three camera videos, you know, like I'm going to make a confession, sort of like that, you know. Um, and it's, I remember it's around 2, 2 p.m. And I said, no, I mean, they keep pushing me, saying, I mean, pushing uh, words in my mouth, saying that you're trying to say that, you know, you, you're a Shia, according to them. So Shia has this contract marriage called uh, Muta'a. So you're trying to say that we, the Sunnis, also have this kind of marriage. So you're going to, you're sort of like trying to manipulate this story, saying that we are also sort of like equal to you, like bad, you see? I said, no. I mean, like, if you, if you really look in, into that film, I said that at the end of it, um, I've stated that uh, this marriage is, um, is uh, giving rights to, 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 the, to the wife. You know, what, what sort of this marriage is it? And, but he, they keep pushing, saying, that, uh, okay, I said, okay, let's, let's watch it. I have the DVD, I mean, we have the DVD, but at that time, it's around 4 p.m. So I look at the, you know, it's 4 p.m., so they're going back, 4.30. So I have, I have two, two, three female, female staffs looking at each other. I mean, like, anak aku kat sekolah. My kids are still in school. I mean, like, something like that, you see? So I say, but I insisted, oh, no, 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 we have to watch it. Um, but at, in, the middle of the, in the middle of the conversation uh, appear this guy, this staff of Jakim, that he loves me very much, that he is the one who actually initiated the banning, he is the one who uh, initiated many other things, you know. Uh, uh, I don't know why he loves me that much. So he, he, he was there, and I, I noticed that the, the, all the video uh, cameras there are actually trying to record me, I mean, for, for his purpose. He's from other department. <laughs> and um, the moment he sit down, he said, okay, Make a confession. I mean, we, we, can, we can help you, sort of like that. They said, what confession? Um, why do you write this? I mean, what's your faith? I mean, why are you doing this? Why are you destabilizing the ummah? You know, all these bizarre words, you see. I was said, no. I said, I'm, I'm helping Erma Fatima to get, I mean, they paid. I mean, RTM need to pay them because they, they have uh, made this movie. And, um, say, oh, and already it's 5 o'clock, you know, at 5 p.m. And then all these female staffs getting, ah, I mean, and uh, apparently they, 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 they let me go. And after two months, I think, um, Erma called me again and said, okay, they've, they, they've paid me 80000 And uh, the drama had been aired for Maulidur Rasul, imagine, uh, during, for Maulidur Rasul. I mean, special, special, you know. A program many years ago. Um, but this is a story. I mean, coming back to, to the question that I have that moment of dialogue with that person, yeah? But actually, it's not about dialogue because according to them, dialogue is about winning a debate. Dialogue is not about that. Dialogue is about how to understand, I mean, Sitting with you and then listen to you, oh, you're a rapper, you are whatever, to try to understand you. But they tend to, you know, to look at this kind of conversation as a debate and we need to win it. We need to win it. 
He said, oh, else this deviant winning it. I mean, like, oh, habillah, liberal, dah menang. So, um, this kind of this. I mean, this kind of mentality, you know. So, it's important to initiate dialogue and to make them understand dialogue is not sort of like a debate. I mean, like, this is not a school debate. I mean, like, but they have this in mind. Yeah. We have about 10 minutes to go. Uh, we'll keep the last three minutes for Subash to do some rapping. Joker. Uh, Joker, yourself have, I think, issues, and you have your challenges. Uh, well, I, I have many depressing co comments and questions, but I, I wouldn't go to that. I would just say funny comment, uh, if you allow me, because this is really, really depressing. Um, in Oman, they don't actually ban a book. Uh, if they want to ban a book, they wouldn't tell you or tell anybody. They wouldn't announce it. And in Oman, we don't have many bookstores, so they bookstores easily could be under you know control. The problem is with book fair, and they don't. We don't have censorship in book fair, so every 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 single book could come, and they are not interested in non-Omani books. So we have like Salman Rushdie, we have everything, it's, it's no problem. If you are Omani, this is the problem, and you're writing something that they don't like. So they wouldn't ban your book officially. They would go, the minute the book fair open, they would go and buy all the copies. The next morning, your book is banished. Nobody could have your book. No, I actually want to just ask Jog another question because we had a, 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 a small exchange the other day. The pressures are not coming just from the state, right? They're not just coming from governments. They're coming from society. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, after uh, I won the Man Booker Prize, uh, for the first day, uh, many people in social media were really happy about it and they, they said they are proud. But the next day when they are actually starting reading the novel, they, uh, they said that I'm um, uh, shame to the country uh, because there are many sensitive issues that shouldn't be there. It's okay to talk about it uh, privately among Omanis, but imagine people in the UK and the, in the US and the, in the East will, will read this about us and they would know us as what we are uh, really. So uh, I have been really attacked. I mean, and um, the, the problem is um, uh, has to, to deal with the education as well. And, and for me, the problem is, uh, uh, of course, political and everything, but also the education, how they educate uh, children in literature. Uh, because all this education is about literature is carrying like direct messages to, to be good. <laughs> and so all, all these things, and they think that this is what should be produced to, to, to show the world that you are so good and so, you know, perfect and so everything. Uh, uh, so when these people grow up, they, they still somehow have the, the same image about literature and about uh, you, you have the, you, uh, it's, there is a, like, like thin line, I would say, between being a good citizen and, uh, uh, and at, the, at the same time, you are expected to, to be a good citizen when you are a good writer and to represent your country. And they, it's, it's just mix, uh, they are mixing between representing human 
uh, or representing yourself or representing you, the country you, 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 you uh, want or you imagine or you like and representing the government. It's different things, but sometimes even normal people, not just authority, they are, don't distinguish between government and your country. So it's, it's, it's really complicated and, and difficult and um, uh, some people from certain er area uh, uh, ask to, that I should uh, be presented at court uh, because there is a girl from that, in my novel, a girl from that area has been raped. So they said that will never happen in our you know, area. So she, she should go to court uh, because she is you know, ashamed our area and things like that. And then they invited me actually to give a talk there and I was so afraid to go. So I couldn't go because I have this, uh, I, I was really threatening that uh, like they, they show knives in the social media, you know, the images of knives and things. So I was like, okay, it's better not to go now. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit difficult and, and it's, it's more difficult in our societies and uh, it's not just the authority, it, it's also the, how people think and how they react. But I also, I, I, I always have hope and I wasn't, I mean, apart from that uh, knife's images and the threads, I, I, I wasn't afraid because uh, I teach at the university, I'm always talking to students so I, I, I have like big hope in, in, in our countries. Thank you. Can I, can I ask a question? Yeah. yeah. So I'm just trying to look at the right side. If they ban a book in Oman, you get more royalties. <laughs> Becomes a bestseller. <laughs> you have to pay. Actually, you have to pay to, uh, for your book to be published. Yeah, okay. I mean, I don't pay, but especially if it's your first book you have to pay i understand that yeah. so you don't get anything okay, you, okay. they just buy all the book and the publisher get the money and that's it <laughs> actually the, the problem that joker um speaks about this 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 confusion about representation is actually all pervasive and it's particularly difficult even for minority communities i remember there was a play band in singapore many years ago when it was a woman's uh indian muslim woman's critique of her own society um, you know, and this was letting the society, the community down. This was a minority community. So minority communities, much as majority communities, wanting to protect themselves, then police their own community and silence difference. And Chinese supremacy in Singapore has brown faces. Like, that's what it is. Minority leaders like, are elected to be in positions of power, but the reason they get there is because they want to deeply entrench the pre-existing like, dominant systems. It is how it works, and they will be used to silence us. That's how it works. And they will be put in front of temples with, with, uh, with cronies behind, shaking their heads, nodding, you know, and they will be the dominant voice of uh, representation for minorities. So it's sad. Don't worry, we're gonna come and liberate you guys soon. I mean, it's just, it's just a, it's a short walk across the damn causeway, you know. <laughs> Regime change is coming, you know. Um, okay, we are coming up to like one minute. So it's a one minute. I'd like to thank Bernice, Faisal, Subash, and Kanan for helping us. He said, reach under your seats for the life jacket and the uh, thing. But I, let, let's have, let's give us a look. Two minute wrap. Give us a two minute. Wrap it up with a wrap. So this <laughs> insidious heart, the album's coming out in a couple of years. 
Yeah, okay, so I'll just do really something simple and this one, uh, I'll read it off because I don't really uh, get to perform this in Singapore, but some poems and some raps just need to exist. They don't need to be performed. Um, this one I wrote, um, it's after in, in February, earlier this year, when a national serviceman, Aloysius Pang, was uh, killed during his reservist training. It's an accident, but um, this was basically, um, he was a media corp celebrity. So finally in Singapore, there was this huge conversation about military training, should it exist? Should a conscript army like exist? And should it be, should we have to go back and serve? Why are we serving? Questions around NS or national service was for the first time in my life, like brought up to the forefront. And um, by the same time, there are other rappers in Singapore who accept money from the Ministry of Defense to put out songs. Um, and one of the songs is like, it goes, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, book out day, you know, a song like that, as simple as that. And the Ministry of Defense and Jack Neal, one of Singapore's like, you know, playwrights, whatever, uh, they come together and they put out a song and make a music video and put tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars into that message. And so it just made me think, huh, it's really funny that rap is convenient into when it perpetuates this certain type of uh, nationalism or patriotism, but rap goes surprisingly quiet when it comes to another like Chinese rap, another uh, a Chinese man is killed, where are the Chinese rappers saying anything, right? So okay, never mind, let's write. And this song is called NS, so if the authorities ask, it's, it stands for Naya Subash. <laughs> <laughs> another mother joins the sorority of sorrow, as another son doesn't live to see tomorrow. Seems like our freedom is borrowed its least, so rise in power as they rest in peace. Rifle salutes the sound of stifled youth. A fatal pursuit, another life that we lose. The trial will probably be a denial of the truth. It's idle in the news till idols in the news. There's a price on my city I'm not willing to pay. Crisis, my city made a killing today. Close my eyes, it don't fade away. Realize it's just another day. Price on my city I'm not willing to pay. Crisis, my city made a killing today. Close my eyes, it don't fade away. Real lies. Conscript is a conscript, a script we must flip, a lie, it's a trick. We lose in men in peacetime, no conflict. We shackled to tradition, all convicts. We got contracts, we got concerts. We got con men in the press conference. We got coffins and no conscience. And change won't come with comments. So we need policy, not apologies. By authorities who throw dollar fees, we got problems. See, my ideology is that we treat our sons like prodigies. Stop sending them. Stop sending them. I've been tallying up the death toll, necronumerals of military funerals. The net goes hysterical, then it's business as usual. Also, fuck these rappers talking about book out day. You better look out day. Curse people out here dying while you're taking money from min death. You mouthpiece, brace yourself. It's a cookout day. The wars we fight in proxy for our minds. Keep the results of autopsy, obviously, to your posse of paper generals. Camouflaged in a code of silence. I need a clarifying act of violence. I need some leaders on this island. I think we need a new alliance. We need prisoners running the asylum. As flags fly half-mast and we repeat mistakes of the past, I rewrite the passages of your rituals and rites of passages. These deaths in vain, rage causing through my veins, even our lives, they have eminent domain. This is state propaganda 
if you take a proper gander. Unnecessary graves within lines gerrymandered. What kind of nation have we become? Another mother's tears grieving over her son.